Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. This podcast, not just this episode, but the podcast in general, is about policy and politics. And to inform the discussion, I often engage with guests who, to quote from the homepage for Tatter, have an understanding gained from the tattered pages of journals, books, and printouts of statistical analyses, or they've been tattered by experience, end quote. In other words, their understanding is empirical, meaning it originates from direct observation or experience. For example, law professor John Pfaff and I didn't simply discuss what his intuitions or theory might suggest is true. We talked about his analysis of actual data from the criminal justice system. More generally, my guests' insights are often drawn from their own or others' careful analysis of evidence. Very often, quantitative data from experiments, surveys, archival records, and more. In short, their conclusions are based on research. The publication manual of the American Psychological Association, or the APA, says, quote, Research is complete only when the results are shared with the scientific community. Although such sharing is accomplished in various ways, both formal and informal, the traditional medium for communicating research results is the scientific journal, end quote. So, according to this view, the scientific process is consummated in writing. This episode is about some of the ways that natural and social scientists use language, especially when writing about their work. It starts with a focus on grammar, verb tense specifically. But in the end, it's about the way we talk about our evidence and how we keep our assertions within the limits of what we can know from our data and when we stray from that path. I recently had a chance to talk with Connor Quinn. Connor is a friend of mine who has a BA in linguistics from Cornell and a PhD in linguistics from Harvard and is now, quite naturally, a linguist. My conversation with Connor is the basis of this episode, which is titled Straight and Narrow. I am basically a documentary and revitalization reclamation linguist. So what that means is, in terms of documentary, it means I work in um, helping to uh, record and document language uh, languages, typically not the major ones, major dominant ones of the world, and and most often the ones that are threatened with, um, you know, with no longer being spoken. <clears throat> so that's the main kind of work I do. And I've, uh, I'm in that side of my work, the other and perhaps more major work that I work on is language uh, revitalization and reclamation, which is working with those same kinds of languages and helping communities at whatever level works for them, whatever they want, whatever's possible um, to help them, um, revitalize their language if it's still being spoken, to reclaim their language if it hasn't been spoken for a while from the sources and various sources and resources um, available. And most of my work in, in that area has been done up here, right here in the Northeast, and, and specifically um, with, at this point, kind of pretty much all of the indigenous groups uh, centered around Maine, 
um, namely Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, Abenaki, and uh, Mi'kmaq. One of the things I'm interested in is verb tense. Uh, we're going to come back to aspect in a moment, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm interested in is verb tense. And this interest arose for me in the context of teaching my students, I'm a psychology professor, teaching them in a research methods course how to write empirical reports. Mm-hmm. And the journal Nature offers some specific recommendations on the use of verb tense. Um, and they say in here, I'll quote, use verb tenses past, present, and future exactly as you would in ordinary writing. Uh, use the past tense to report what happened in the past, what you did and what someone reported, what happened in, in an experiment, and so on. Mm-hmm. Use the present tense to express general truths, such as conclusions drawn by you or by others, and atemporal facts, including information about what the paper does uh, or covers. Reserve the future tense for perspectives, what you will do in the coming months or years. So I suspect most of my most of our listeners have at least a basic understanding of the difference between say past tense. So in the study, we found that women reported lower self-esteem than men, uh, the present tense. We think this means that women generally exhibit lower self-esteem than men and then future tense in future studies. We will test for the generality uh, of this effect. When you think about those distinctions between past tense, present tense, and future tense in the context of talking about research, why, why, if at all, do you think it matters? Well, I think um, even though uh, even though you were saying I want to talk about tense now and aspect and 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 mood later. Those three things, and, and we can definitely get to them later, tense, mood, and aspect are all bound up as part of a, a, a bigger system or a more a basic system in human languages as we've observed across pretty much all the human languages we've ever looked at, which, uh, which is a pretty good sample of the planet. All of this stuff, tense, mood, and aspect, and starting even just with tense, uh, seems to be a way to package how we uh, package events. Like we... As speakers of human language, we mostly talk about events and things. Uh, you know, man bites dog. You've got uh, you've got two things: a man and a dog, and then they are participants or otherwise involved in an event of biting. And so, it's almost it's very hard to imagine human language as we know it without at least those things: events and things. But after that, what do we have beyond just events and things of man, of man biting dog, dog biting man, and so forth? Um, we, ha- we start to add on to, say, the basic concept of biting. We add on something like tense, where, you know, in, li- in general linguistic definitions, tense is strictly, is, strictly speaking, essentially the position of that event in time. Yep. Uh, so it's only, I mean, it is very parallel to the position of, of, say, an object in space, if we're talking about that. The main thing uh, about tense is that it's typically anchored to the point of speech, that is the point of time that we use as, as, our, um, as our point of reference for talking about other events, is the here and now. But the key thing about the here and now is the here and now is the point of speech. So it, uh, we often kind of forget that, that it's about that the here and now in terms of tense is all about the when we actually you know, do the speech act. 
So it's still very much defined. So tense is, is still very much defined by the fact that we're talking at all and the time and the place where we're doing the talking. So it's still sort of language referring to itself, referring to the, using the point at which the language happens as the reference point for all of this. So I would say the main thing, it, my sense from editors and as, as an occasional academic writer myself, um, the main thing that scientists are concerned about, right, is that we don't want to assert things that we don't actually have evidence for. Right. We don't want to make assertions that are, that are intentionally or unintentionally misleading, you know, misrepresenting what we do or don't know. And so all of these components around events, you know, first of all, what events at all we'd be asserting in any way, shape or form, but then when the events happened, how, uh, how much they hold, like, do they hold all, at all times or are we just limiting our assertion to being like, well, we saw it happen once, right? That doesn't mean it always happens. Right. right. Versus making drawing a conclusion saying this must always be the case. Um, so these very components of everyday human language of tense and the other things we'll talk about later are ways of packaging events relative to the conversation, relative to what I as a speaker am going to be asserting or, or not asserting or aiming not to assert. So uh, I think we are sensitive to when we, when we're sensitive, when we're, when we're using our academic scientific writing sensitivities, we are sensitive to what will, tense be asserting or not asserting alongside sort of the main, the more obvious main choice of vocabulary items like man and bite and dog alongside what that, that alone is asserting. My students, when they are writing the standard APA style lab report, there's an introduction where they review the literature and pose the research question, articulate their hypotheses. If they, have hypotheses in the method section, they describe what they did. The results section, they describe what they found. And then in the discussion section, which mm-hmm. I want to focus on, they summarize the key results and talk about what it means. So describing their conclusions and any broader implications of those conclusions. In that discussion section, when, say, a student is describing the conclusions they draw if they follow the advice of the uh, APA publication manual, they're, they're, they're going to put those conclusions in present tense. But even there, they've got some choices to make. And so consider a couple of, uh, of alternatives. A student mm-hmm. might uh, frame their conclusion uh, in this way. I'll call it conclusion A. Mm-hmm. Quote, the present data are consistent with the gender invariance hypothesis, which holds that men will report higher levels of social dominance orientation uh, than women. Consider in contrast, conclusion B, the present data show that men report higher levels of social dominance orientation than women. It would seem to me that the use of the present tense in the first case where the, uh, the present tense is simply saying that the present data are consistent with the particular hypothesis and then restating that hypothesis. It, seem, it would seem to me that that's less uh, vulnerable to the charge that the student is being insufficiently cautious than in the second case. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, the interesting issue there is that both of these conclusions, both of these alternatives are expressed in the present tense. It's it, the difference is, uh, and so you're asserting a certain event holds at the present time. Um, and the, you know, the two main versions of present tense uh, of present tense 
or does it hold at nearly the present time or does it hold at the present time and all time included uh, that it's included in like as a generalization uh, but either way um, the key thing is that what you've put in the present tense in the first one is the statement such and such is consistent with such and such and then in the second one you've said such and such shows that such and such so the um, so the big question is what are you the big question for your students is hey students what are you actually asserting uh, the second one is a little bit too direct because it asserts probably more than you have actually evidence for and the first one uh, assert, asserts a, an equally present event but uh, but hedges that all we know all we actually know is the is the data we're looking at mm-hmm. we don't know we don't know for sure what it, uh, we don't know what it definitely proves, uh, proves or doesn't prove. We only know that it is consistent with a particular claim. So the first one is actually a little more meta-linguistic in the sense that instead of just making the claim, right, the second one just sort of says, this shows that, right? It makes a very clear assertion. Yep. The, uh, the first one brings up a claim and uh, brings up a claim, pretty much the same claim, such and such, uh, such, and such is the case, or you know, men report more than women uh, uh, of this. It brings up that claim, but then repackages that whole thing or um, wraps that whole thing in a merely it is consistent with that claim. So the first one is is literally language layered upon itself, and the second one is just a sort of single straight instance of uh, of a linguistic assertion. The second would seem to have as part of its appeal, though, mm-hmm. that it might be easier to understand for an audience that uh, doesn't do science. Yeah, and I think that's one of the fundamental fundamental questions and difficulties, both for a, a layperson reading science or, and somebody learning to speak and speak, uh, talk, hedge their speech in this in the in the necessary or appropriate or normative scientific ways. Which is what's what's essentially at issue here is something that comes up in a bunch of languages' grammatical system. It's called evidentiality, and we can come back to that. But I think coming back to the question of like, well, the second one may not be as as careful, but it's a lot easier to read versus the, read or follow uh, versus the first one is is sort of a bit more tangly. The main reason why is that is that we have this sort of basic assertion that we would you know we would love to be able to directly make and therefore we have uh, have the, uh, just sort of say X shows Y. Uh, we would love to be able to just sort of say X shows Y, oh, um, but. Uh, we don't have enough evidence yet, or 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 the only assertions we should we can scientifically validly make are X is consistent with uh, that. Um, our observations are cons- our our observations are consistent with the proposal that X shows Y. Right. Right. So um, so what you're doing what you're doing here linguistically is you are and it's, I guess I've just said this before is you is you have you have a proposal a proposition and then you want to um, add more hedges onto it that adds more linguistic structure it adds literally more syntax it adds more linguistic material to process and on top of that the linguistic material that you're adding is is of the more abstract type it's the type that things that say something like this is consistent consi- consistent with that or this seems or even something more everyday like this seems like that or this kind of suggests that that uh, that x is y right but not, not not a simple direct it means it it shows it kind of thing those kinds of hedges um on switch are fairly abstract and then re- and again just to even add them in requires more layers of clause structure and whatnot 
so they're they're more tangly. They're not direct. Um, they are literally indirect, uh, adding indirect layers of speech to what we all you know we all aim to have the clearest and most direct speech we can. But the clearest and most direct speech won't be scientifically scientifically valid because we don't actually have a direct knowledge and a direct uh, um, and you know direct proof of the proposal the proposition uh, that we're considering so like scientists like lawyers we have to pile on this extra verbiage in order to essentially be telling the the actual truth as we know it because the only truth we actually know is these are our observations these are what they could maybe these are what they point to not necessarily demonstrate show or, or mean um, or these are what they um, suggest or are consistent with. Those are the only things we actually know in any kind of you know, notional truth. You know, you know, we can say logically this fits with this, this fits with that. Um, whether that means there's a broader generalization, a broader truth we can claim due to that logical consistency is sort of up to the reader and up to you know arraying and arranging more data along this until there's just so much consistent with the proposal that we're just going to go with it and think it's probably true. <laughs> As I think through what we've been discussing, it seems to me that uh, empirical researchers mm-hmm. uh, have these competing uh, motivations, mm-hmm. perhaps even imperatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope my, I've begun using present tense. I hope that I, this is justified, but um, <laughs> <Or hedges. laughs> uh, empir- empirical researchers have this um pair of motivations or perhaps imperatives that I think are in conflict where on the one hand, at least when their audience is their peers, given the, uh, the the tangle of uncertainty that attaches to our data, especially with small samples and or small numbers of samples, uh, we have to hedge and we have to, um, uh, qualify what we're saying um, and and gravitate toward, or at least it, it we I, sh- I shouldn't say have to. I, I would say at our best, when we're talking to our peers, uh, we want to gravitate toward conclusions like that, like conclusion A. But at the same time, we have a motivation because we don't do our work in a vacuum. We need the support of broader constituencies. We seek federal funding from um, uh, foundations that face political pressures. And it's, it's helpful when we can convince the wider public legislators, our students that what we're doing is interesting and important. So we want to draw them in and those same hedges can be barriers to drawing people in who are, who are not, our peers that uh, yeah that's definitely an interesting problem i mean it's part of the the bigger and broader problem of of when you've been schooled in a particular academic discourse a whole set of norms about how you talk and don't talk you know putting it the, this whole hedging issue but even even just our academic jargon and all of that when then when we want to go talk to you know non-specialists um people outside of our discipline how do we talk about the stuff uh that we work on um, in a new version, in a different version of, our, of say, the English language, something that's more accessible and less off-putting, and particularly the whole the hedge requirement, which requires us to package pretty much any any proposition in in some kind of and uh, some kind of hedge, uh, some kind of extra po- extra clause or two of of hedging material. 
uh, it certainly makes us sound like, A, we don't really know anything, um, or we're just very, very nervous people. But it also just obscures, like, what, what are the, what are the, what are the propo- propositions where we are even entertaining, right? Because that's the main issue is we want is we do want to convey to people that we never really know anything for sure, but we also want to convey to people the things about which <laughs> we never really know anything. We want to convey to people what, you know, what propositions we are entertaining. Um, right. And we also want to, con- we also want to con- convey to them like of those propositions, which are we nonetheless fairly sure about, which of them are we highly tentative about? It's a new hypothesis or there's just, there's some exciting new data, but it's not conclusive. But it, but if, if the proposition is true, this would be awesome, right? We want to be able to convey all those nuances fairly quickly and, and effectively. I mean, we do, we have plenty of time to sort of parse this out when we prepare our academic talks and our academic papers. Um, but, uh, but when we are, say, being interviewed off the cuff, um, I don't know, in, say, a podcast or something, um, <laughs> we, um, or just, you know, talking to people at a party or just, or, or having the time to prepare a public lecture or a, or a public article or something like that, um, it is a particularly interesting challenge to figure out, all right, how can we dial down the academic level of hedging while nonetheless find, ma- maintaining at least some modicum of of hedging to our, our, our propositions that will keep us more or less still telling the truth to the general, the truth as we know it. Cause the truth as we know it is this proposition plus it's hedge, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's X happens plus the hedge. We observe data suggesting that X happens, right? One place where I see the hedges uh, completely trimmed away Mm-hmm. Uh, is in the titles of articles. Uh, and, oh, yeah. Um, so I, I shared with you a brief report by some friends of mine. Uh, and when we don't have time to get into the details of the, uh, the article, but I will uh, applaud my friends for the ways in which they uh, are circumspect in the body of the paper mm-hmm. in describing... So, so in, in this paper, they report evidence from an experiment in which participants were randomly assigned to either be tested in a room that had no salient odor in it, so that's the control room, or a room in which the researchers had used a stink spray in a trash can to make the room smell foul. Mm-hmm. So that's the smell condition. Mm-hmm. And participants sit in that room and complete surveys, critical questions of which ask them to report how warm uh, that's a metaphor for how favorable they mm-hmm. feel toward a variety of groups, including gay men mm-hmm. and heterosexual men. And mm-hmm. what the researchers fo- found, I almost mm-hmm. said find, what the researchers found was that in the smell condition, participants, um, even politically liberal participants, mm-hmm. reported less uh, warm feelings toward gay men and straight men, and that did not happen in the control condition. And the, and the researchers are, are just beautifully cautious and, and circumspect in how they describe their conclusions. Mm-hmm. But then the title is disgusting smells cause decreased liking of gay men. So just this categorical present tense, uh, unqualified claim. And to be fair, it's not limited to my friends. I'm looking at the most current issue of the journal psychological science. And among the titles I see feeling is believing inspiration encourages belief in God uh, or um, group influences on engaging self-control, and there's the subtitle, 
children delay gratification and value it, value it more when their in-group delays um, and their out-group uh, doesn't. And then finally, uh, subjective confidence predicts information seeking in decision-making. So I, I suspect that each of these articles, when you get into the body, it's, it's careful and uh, qualifies uh, claims, especially if there's uh, limited database upon which to make those claims. But the titles, and again, I think that the titles are the first thing you see and it's designed to draw you in. It doesn't do that. So if you were an editor, would you uh, impose restrictions on authors and force a little more hedging in the titles or perhaps force them to pose their titles as questions rather than these declarative statements in present tense? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I have definitely noticed the same phenomenon um, in the research articles that I work on in linguistics, although I swear I've seen at least somewhat more um, titles framed as questions and possibly um, whatever uh, whatever kinds of hedges, they, very brief, like single word hedges like seems or suggests mm-hmm. uh, added in the title or the past the colon subtitle. Uh, perhaps in, in in linguistics, but still, I've seen plenty of the of the straight claim, the direct assertion ones as well, and it's I've never really thought about it that much as an editorial issue. Um, I would imagine that one of the ways of looking at this is, as we know, as we know, or at least expect, in the bodies of the text, they go back to full on uh, academic hedging, uh, researcher he- scientific hedging. And it's just there's this convention that you don't have to do that in the title. And it actually makes a lot of sense because if you think of that, the hedge, the hedge about, you know, uh, about exactly what kind of truth are we asserting? Are we asserting that, that the proposition itself is directly true? Or are we asserting that we have lots of data supporting it or just we have new data that is consistent with it, et cetera, all these varying degrees um, of hedging of certainty or uncertainty in our hedge is that the content of the hedge is very, very important to properly interpreting what we're talking about. But the con- then the content of the basic proposition that's being sort of wrapped up in a hedge is also very important. And for somebody who, uh, somebody who's, say, scanning titles of, of research articles or looking, or, or looking for sorts of things, the hedge is not as important at that moment, right? It's mostly like, what propositions are we entertaining? What hedge, are, what filter, uh, what hedge filter are we entertaining this proposition through is not actually as important at that point in engagement with, with the whole narrative. Yeah. Right? Once you're in the narrative, it matters a lot because then you're like, you're either telling the truth or you're not, or you're misrepresenting how much you think the truth is true uh, or how much you think the claim is true. But if we're, when we're, when we're looking at titles, we're just like, well, what are the, what, what, what are the, I wouldn't say claims even, what are the propositions we're playing with? And that, and that alone is not, is enough. And it's probably emerged as a convention because as we know, to insert the proper claims, you know, doubles the length of the title very yeah. easily or adds substantially to it. And it doesn't add, it adds information that we are most, that is, that we're mostly conventionally required to, not because it's not objectively important, but it's just not the most important information at that point in the conversation, as it were. So that's probably why we, why we allow ourselves and each other to get away with, uh, with breaking our normal rule, because at yeah. that point, it doesn't cost us anything and it, and it doesn't result in a misunderstanding. It, you know, people read those titles and don't necessarily read and don't necessarily think, Oh, X causes Y. Cool. Now we know. Right. But, right. Um, whereas if you did that all through the entire pa- uh, paper, yeah. you have a problem. 
and and maybe in the in in a manner um, parallel to how it's fun to always when you read uh, Fortune and a Fortune Cookie to in your mind's ear add in bed at the mm-hmm. end. Maybe uh, at least for experienced readers, uh, it's 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 implied that you finish the title and then in the back of your mind you hear under certain circumstances. So yeah, so it's sort of like there's an implied qualification there. Yeah, there's an implied qualification. We have obs- we we are we this paper will report data suggesting that uh, suggesting the the uh, data of a certain degree of uh, uh, pointing to a certain degree of certainty, high or low, regarding the proposition that title. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and, and human language is very optimized that way. Like when we have been, gone through many, many years of academic, of being trained to be academic writers or journalists and so forth, or, or, or lawyers, where our, our very words, you know, exactly what we assert or don't assert is, is very important. Um, we're taught to be clear and explicit, which, you know, to one degree is to be as minimalist as possible, but we're also taught to use as many hedges as possible if that's what the truth as we know it now, as we currently know it is, as we're currently limited to knowing it now actually is. But in everyday speech, um, in everyday communication, um, we, the, one of the most fundamental things human beings do is leave out massive amounts of information that is uh, because it's understood by the other person. Yeah. And one of the reasons we have to be taught academic norms of writing is because we're writing for a wider audience than the people we know who, who share, information who, who share a lot of information with us and we also have you know we also have, of course have to be taught to write write in a way that under that that works when the audience isn't going to be able to respond immediately and, and you know and have a have a face-to-face conversation with us clearing up uncertainties or clear or saying did you actually assert that or or um, and so forth. So we all have to write write knowing that it's essentially a one-sided conversation. Right. Right. So in this uh, um, in this area, we mostly put in hedges because we know we have because we know we have to have them. But um, when we get to those titles, we're drawing from, we're drawing on the, this general human tendency to basically where the rest of this where the rest of the conversation provides it, just leave out information that uh, that your reader can supply. So yeah. so um, in light of the perhaps awful fortune cookie joke that I um, uh, referenced going forward forward. When I read article titles, I'm going to actually add uh, the phrase in bed. So um, (laughs) inspiration encourages belief in God in bed. Uh, Uh Maybe you can do that in the, on the world of linguistics. Oh God. (laughs) But but shifting gears. uh, This is, this is going to occupy a lot of, uh, a lot of academics time on Facebook. sharing. Um, well, sh- shifting shifting gears, um, I'm going to shift gears with a Mitch Hedberg joke, and and here I quote: um, "I used to do drugs. I still do, but I used to too." Oh yeah, <laughs> I know. I can you talk joke. about like what makes that joke work? Oh, this is where if I were a proper semanticist, I'd be I'd be I'd have an instant answer for you. This this is like basically semantics 101, which I've never actually taken. Um, Yeah, somehow I got a PhD without really properly taking semantics. Hello world. Um, I got a a psychology degree without ever taking a course in abnormal psychology. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. We just learn everything else basically. So um, I believe that basically the deal is with, with, when you say I used to do drugs, there's a strong, um, Oh, what is this semantics term for it? I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's just jargon, but um, 
there's a strong implication that if you say used to, you mean it no longer is the case, right? That, yep. Because it would, I guess in a, in a broader, one bit of semantics and pragmatics I know in a broader sense is that we usually, unless we have reasons to distrust people or otherwise, we usually uh, operate on a principle um, that people are telling us information that is relevant or important or useful. And saying I used to do something is a lot is typically a lot less useful if it if you're still doing it now or yep. it's a lot less useful information if you're still doing if it's you're still doing it now versus if you're contrasting that now I don't do it versus I did it in the past and so we read the first, we read the first thing uh, as as kind of implying that we no longer do it uh, and then the joke comes from the fact that it is, while, while while saying I used to do it Imp, kind of imp, uh, carries a convention. I think the term may be conventional implicature. Any <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. semanticism will be like he's either completely right or completely wrong on that. Um, that um, that or but at least loosely, conventionally, we read used to to, uh, to imply it is that uh, no longer or not anymore. Um, but at the same time, used to does not explicitly rule out. Right. Uh, rule out it's still being the case in the present and that's why that's how Mitch Hedberg gets to play with that and, it, um, and, and by the way it fits with uh, theories of humor at least within psychology mm-hmm. that, uh, multiple of which assume that a key component of humor is some sort of violation including a violation of expectancies and so the, yeah. you're describing the way in which the expectancy is set up by the reference to I used to there are actually languages that have grammatical components there uh, in the, you know, grammatic as deep a part of the grammar as safe tense or mood and aspect that actually indicate violation of expectation. And I can come back to that in a second. Um, but it's interesting. It's such a fundamental part of communications and the speech act and our cognitive reactions to, to the world and what we feel necessary to report to other people using the human language that many languages have actually evolved a way to be like, whoa, I'm surprised at, at that, that that event happened. <laughs> right. Hmm. Um, it's called a mirative. And I like, it's like, like admire minus the AD mirative. Um, and it's actually closely, re- closely tied to the evidentials, which are basically the linguistic hedges of the sort that we talked about. And it may be worth bringing it up right now. Go for it. It's, particularly in the languages of the Americas, North America, South America, Central America in between, um, and actually a good, a good long patch of, um, of everything, of Turkey into Central Asia, and frankly, a whole bunch of other languages all around the world everywhere, um, but for some reason, not as saliently so in perhaps the more familiar European languages. Alongside, or instead of, um, uh, tense, mood, and aspect, when you're when you go to um, present an event, you know, say event happened or did happen or um, and so um, so forth, many languages grammatically require you to indicate whether or not you were a direct witness to that event happening. Yep. Versus, uh, versus you have only essentially in, inferred that it happened by either inferred that it happened because of, uh, because you've seen evidence suggesting it. Or another form of evidential is that you're reporting this event as secondhand hearsay, and those are the two main kind, the two primary kinds of evidentials you run you run across in the world's languages. Some languages just have an evidential marker that basically that basic uh, um, a distinction between like if I add if I don't add this element, I'm basically saying I saw it happen. If I do add this element, I'm saying there's some indirect reason for me to present this information. Either I I see secondary evidence that it happened, or I get hearsay information. 
And then some languages with evidentials then split and have a specific one for hearsay information and a specific one for essentially after the fact inferential information. Like that one, the canonical example is sort of saying it rained with the, with the direct evidential or um, is just, I saw it rain. And then it rained with the say inferential one is I didn't see it rain, but there's puddles everywhere kind of thing uh, is when you'd say it, it rained. So pretty close to English, it must have rained. Um, and then of course the hearsay one is used for literally, I heard it from somebody today and it's often used in oral tradition. If people have traditional narratives, they're usually peppered through with hearsay, hearsay, hearsay. So like every event in this legend, every sentence just has like a single or two syllable hearsay element, just reminding us that so we are told or so I was told or so I heard. Is it your sense that in such languages that, that, that mark hearsay explicitly in that way, Mm -hmm. your sense that that is because hearsay is uh, discounted in terms of its evidential value uh, more so than is true in languages that don't mark it that way? I have no idea. There have been, these languages, evidential systems have been investigated backwards, uh, uh, really still not quite enough. Um, But there haven't been a whole lot of, I I only know in in my area, and there may be more outside my area, um, here I am hedging, um, (laughs) that um, there was one paper that was, that that, uh, began to talk about how languages in, in the language family I work with, why, you know, why do they have such uh, systematic uh, systematic indication of hearsay information and, inform- and inferential information as in contrasted to just a straight direct assertion. And that paper suggested that due to the cultural value, uh, the cultural norms about cultural conversational norms in, uh, in these kinds of languages and communities, that there uh, was a higher value placed not on, uh, or a negative value placed on just assert, 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 and a much higher value or, or preferred value on not asserting propositions, but just merely presenting them. That is to say, I will sort of hand the proposition for you to look at. Yeah. I'm not telling you that you have to believe it or that I even, or that I even believe it. Um, I just, I, I, I leave it to you to, to make of it what you will. And in order to do that better, I can sort of say, well, I, dire- I, I directly witness this. Here's a proposition, uh, an event that I directly witnessed. Here's an event that somebody t- that I heard about, and here's an event that you know I see some evidence for. And all of those allow you to um, to merely present the proposition rather than assert it. And again, and what, what what are some languages we're talking about here? Basically, everything in North America. Practically, um, the better part of North America. Now, in the languages I work with, belong to a large language family like here in Maine. Belong to a large language family uh, called the Algonquian language mm-hmm. family. And it stretches all the way from it's most of the languages of the East Coast until you get uh, down into like the Carolinas and beyond, um, and all across uh, and westward into um, the Great Lakes region, and then even across the Great Plains, mostly on, on the Canadian side. And there's Algonquin languages scattered down in various other places, like the Kickapoo have made it all the way down to Mexico, and so forth. And nearly all the Algonquin languages have at least the the hearsay and the inferential uh, evidentials. And there was a paper, I think that was about uh, Plains Cree, so way far out west. Um, and that's the one and only paper I've, I've encountered where people are trying to get the sort of bigger picture of like, why do people, why do speech, com- why are there speech communities that decide to work this way, that sort of grammatically demand of their speakers um, that they uh, toss in a hearsay marker every, uh, every time. So I wouldn't say that it's because there's some kind of discounting of hearsay information. 
I think it's probably more about a commitment to making people know, making people sure that like of the propositions I'm going to toss in your general direction for you to evaluate as you see fit, I'm, I'm being helpful um, in that process by mm-hmm. dividing them up to, you know, you can decide what, uh, what to make of it if you think I'm a reliable witness versus, uh, and you should probably know that I wasn't even a witness to this, et cetera, um, is, is an important part of, of making these propositions useful to you um, and also honestly representing them, I guess. But I think, I mean, in the communities that I work with, uh, there definitely is a norm of, of, of strong public hedging and, and being very humble about how you present yourself and how you being very humble about how you present your knowledge or what you would even claim to be your knowledge. And so I think that may be, that may be tied into it, but I, you know, <laughs> I must hedge here and say, I, I don't really, uh, uh, I don't really know for sure. Uh, but it is a striking feature that the fact that these are so, are so high, highly frequently used that they have become whittled down to single to at most two syllable or or uh, um, for the better part two syllable or even monosyllabic elements. Sometimes they're so short they can't even stand alone. They get to just sort of get tied glued to the previous word in the sentence. There's so fundamental part. Uh, there's such fundamental parts of you know nearly of every other utterance people make that they become, that they are, you know, you must, you pretty much have to say these are part of the grammar and integrated into the very grammar of the language, the same way um, verb tense is in in English. And that's, and the funny thing is having worked with these languages for so many years and then going into and, and simultaneously literally doing scientific writing, academic writing about these languages, I find myself very, very frustrated that I have to write about these languages in English because as a scientific writer, almost every sentence I have has, uh, I want to have one of these hedges in them. I either want to say, this is hearsay or this is, uh, this is mere inference. And so I found that, for example, that my dissertation, if you ever read it is full of evidently, 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 (laughs) you know, and plus a bunch of seems, 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 evidently, evidently, seems, 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 which are all basically me, um, hedging certain kinds of inference or just presenting uh, or just presenting a proposition as, you know, it looks like this. Um, and that I, I noticed that and realized that it's because I'm, I really part the part of me coming from the scientific writing wants to do that. And then the part of me coming from trying to like learn and internalize as best I can, how people talk to try to talk like them too, um, in languages like Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, Malice and so forth. If, if more, scientists published in Passamaquoddy mm-hmm. would their work that is if, if more scientists who would otherwise be writing in English mm-hmm. wrote their empirical re- uh, reports in Passamaquoddy in this hypothetical world where they're proficient great in world. languages would the science would, would, would the scientific claims be expressed with greater caution well I think it, it, um, if people if they were writing and they were following Passamaquoddy language speech norms to the best of my highly limited understanding of them, they, it would certainly just be a lot easier to uh, easier and more efficient to hedge because most of our strategies for evidential hedging in English are these kind of drawn out adverbial phrases like, you know, uh, like seemingly, or, or they're drawn out extra clauses like, you know, it appears that, or it must be so, or, um, and so forth. Um, or even these, like, these data are consistent with, yeah, exactly. Um, and while these data, there isn't a single evidential hedge for these data are consistent with in Passamaquoddy, to my knowledge, 
Um, there are definitely very efficient ways of, of there are very efficient and, and kind of interlocking ways of dealing with um, un, of, of marking a proposition as not completely certain. And um, with, there's a single syllable brief element that you can just toss in at the, after the first word in the clause to do that. And then simultaneously on the verb, you can, you can, you can use a, um, a marker that sort of says this past, um, this past event I'm presenting to you, you know, there's one that uh, says it's a, um, this past event I'm presenting to you as one that I witnessed directly. This other past event I'm presenting to you as one that I only have inferential evidence, for, inferential evidence for. And then you can, you can mix and match them all as well. So you can throw in inferential evidence plus I'm not entirely certain. And you could even tack on like hearsay as well. Right. So it's said that this must, that, that maybe this must've happened. Right. Which is, how you do this in English, which is a big clunky phrase, but whereas it's like all of that would be conveyed by grammatical elements or near grammatical elements in say Passamaquoddy. So I think it would just make it a lot easier for a scientific writer to use the strategies that we use in English as well, but the, um, but they'd be already integrated at, at a grammatical level. So you'd be lecturing your students about how to use grammatical elements to do science writing well, the same way you, you we've talked about at the beginning of this um, and how to use English tense. Yeah. Uh, I think on top of that, perhaps because it is part of normative speech norms um, to use these evidentials rather rigorously, you might have a lot less lecturing to do to your students. Um, I mean, that I'm not sure about yeah. <laughs> evidential hedge, um, but I'm slightly inclined to think that, yeah, um, because these languages you know, make it part of your grammatic, you know, your, the unconscious grammatical patterns you follow all the time, like verb tense in English, um, to evidentially hedge and, and, you know, as sort of chicken or the egg cause and consequence of that, right. They, um, the tools for doing that are very efficient and very easy to, to drop in. Uh, yeah, I, I think it could be another possibility. I mean, it's a, there's a whole bunch of other ways in which scientific writing would be greatly aided, uh, very specific, <laughs> be greatly aided by by the expressive resources of a language like Passamaquoddy Malice, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Why is the uh, reclamation of languages important? I think I already hinted at it just previously what the benefit for humanity in general, like for, for um, the scientific, academic, intellectual, scholarly world would be for, like what kinds of resources these languages offer in terms of expression and information um, presentation and management, all kinds of things that we could almost not even dream of in English. And that's the broader value. And the world would be definitely be improved by having, you know, more scientific work be done through those tools of expression and, and linguistic expression and so forth. But, and that is what it is. Um, but I think at the end of the day, one of the most important values of language reclamation is for the health and survival of the peoples whose languages these belong to, to whom these languages belong, whose heritage uh, these languages are. Because in the communities that I've worked with, people report how much better they feel about themselves and their circumstances. In the communities I work with, they've all been struggling with all the the, um, the consequences of, of intense and destructive colonialism. 
and they and you know if they're if they're not already speakers of language, it means that then colonialism and and its various pressures have have denied have now made them a generation that was denied the opportunity to learn their own ancestral language. And when people get get even the beginnings of their ancestral language back, it allows them to do things like, for example, pray according to any range of traditions, pray in their language, which uh, and feel connected to their ancestors in a way that up till then they've been cut off from. And if it's in a if it's a community where like the grandchildren have never had a chance to learn language, but the grandparents are speakers of the language, it allows grandchildren to develop a relationship, a new f- a, a component of a of relationship with their grandparents that they never got to have before, and feels distinctly and uniquely their own. So the upshot is the reclamation of language is you know there are these broader like what is it what's its value to everybody else in the world. And that's a, I always have a little trouble with that because on one hand, I think it's good, but on the other hand, it's very um, utilitarian and kind of like, what do these people have to offer us? What can we get out of them? But there can be a good side of it as well, uh, to be sure. Um, but I think what a, just as an outsider listening to what people have told me, um, for what that's worth, hedge hedge, um, it seems uh, it, it seems like the essentially the emotional and psychological resource that is their own ancestral language is enormously valuable and gives people back all kinds of strengths that they otherwise wouldn't have had access to um, internal strengths like feeling like they're, they're they have reclaimed a, a piece of territory that had been taken away from them um, and then just these very personal connections of now being able to connect with your own grandmother while she's still around um, in ways that thus far had always been out of your reach. Like she's always yeah. been speaking it, but I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Now I'm actually at least got a foot in the door and, and I'm in my grandmother's world in a way I, my whole life I've never been able to before. That I think is the real value or a major one. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Connor Quinn for taking the time to talk with me. And if you want to learn more about Connor, visit his homepage at www.connormquinn.com. That's C-O-N-O-R-M-Q-U-I-N-N.com. Connormquinn.com. I also want to thank the late Mitch Hedberg for the gift of his comedy. And in light of recent comments about Ambien by Roseanne Barr, I also want to thank Hedberg for showing us all that you can take drugs and be funny without being racist. Kids, don't try this at home or anywhere. Mitch Hedberg did talk about racism, and here I quote, You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Whoa, hold on now. Purple or green, you gotta draw the line somewhere. To hell with purple people, unless they're suffocating. Then help them. Of course, Hedberg's delivery was better than mine, but what are you gonna do? In any case, listen to more Mitch Hedberg, and while you're at it, listen to more Stephen Wright and Dimitri Martin, and also keep listening to Tatter. If you don't mind, also follow Tatter on Twitter. That's at tatter underscore rags. In any case, thank you for listening to this episode and be well.